I, I hope you're enjoying the nice weather as much as I am. Isn't this been a sweet, sweet time? Great. And it looks like you're having a sweet time with each other out here. So thanks for coming. May it be a, a good time together here as we celebrate uh, Acts chapter 11 together and uh, look forward to uh, speaking about a new day from Acts 11. Let me pray as we get started here. Father, as we come into your word, we pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done, your heart would be uh, infectious among us by your spirit, that we could be responsive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, for those of you who are here in Acts 10, uh, we saw that uh, Cornelius uh, was able to uh, have this relationship with Jesus firmly established, meeting with Peter and all the magic of, uh, of uh, the, the reality that the Gentiles were given direct access to heaven. There was no need for uh, non-Jews to be converted to Judaism and then become Christians. No surgery involved for the guys. It was you could just believe in Jesus Christ and you too could be saved. And that was a happy new day, a transformative reality now established uh, in the church. What we're going to find that this morning, we're going to come back to this, and you'll see that we really overlap with uh, the content of last week, but there are different dimensions that we'll get to look at here, and particular, uh, in particular, we'll uh, look at the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so what I want to do is, uh, though we'll have the overhead text of uh, chapter 11, 1 through 18, I'm going to start out and just read from my own Bible from the end of chapter 10 in verse 44, where it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers uh, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. It seems like the Tower of Babel, Babel, uh, has now been overcome. Uh, there's now a return to the ability for humanity be, to be united even in a shared language in that given moment. Uh, they were speaking in tongues, extolling God, and then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them uh, to be baptized in the, name, in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now we go to chapter 11 and pick up the text for the morning. Now the apostles and brothers who were uh, throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision, circumcision party criticized them. We're going to see that these people are a plague on the church. They're called Judaizers. That is Jewish people that want to stay with this idea. You have to be converted to become a proselyte of Judaism, go through circumcision as a guy, and then you could have Jesus. And they're persistent in that idea even though that has been overcome, as we just have seen in the text last week. We'll come back to that here. So they're resisting this. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men, the, the non-kosher people, and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order, 
I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. I looked at it closely. I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. A change of day. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house by which, in which we were and set, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus... Who was I that I should stand in God's way? When, I, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. So there's our text for the day, and you'll see that it really does overlap what we looked at last week, if you were here last week. What we'll find is that Gentiles now have direct access to heaven, and a new day has come. So let's pick up some of the basic elements of the text here in chapter 11, uh, 1 through 18, and uh, notice some practical issues. For instance, we find that Peter uh, recognizes, as the word is out, that there needs to be a conversation. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, but remember the church is built of people, and there's the need for the people to get together and have the conversation about, do we all agree that this is what God is doing among us? And so the 12 apostles, remember they s selected a new 12th apostle to replace Judas after he was gone. So we remain with the 12 apostles, those who are considered the leaders of the church. They're in Jerusalem. Even as the church has begun to spread, they remain in Jerusalem and pro provide basically an anchoring point and... Um, the center for touchstone for reference so that people could come and ask, what is it that we believe? What are the things we, we've learned about Christ? And they're the experts. They spent three years plus with Jesus, and they're there. And so um, one of them, of course, is Peter. So he goes to the 11 and basically presents what has happened. And that's what we have here is this presentation of the events. And... Um, as he does this after, it's a, by the way, Caesarea, one thing, if you have a chance to go to Israel, pay attention to the distances. It is 75 miles from Caesarea 
up to Jerusalem. I, I worked for a summer uh, in an archaeological excavation in Caesarea, so that was kind of fun to be there. And on weekends or on the Shabbat, I would jump in a cab or catch a rented arrangement and go up to Jerusalem. And that was a little bit of a trek, a couple of hours typically. But picture that on foot and climbing fairly steep hill to get up to Jerusalem. It was probably a three or four day trip, maybe five day trip, because 75 miles uh, on your feet, hot weather, there you go. So that was a serious issue. Uh, Peter goes up there to give his report. He reports on the conversion of the Gentiles, and he gives the story, once again, his vision. That's the key piece. And, and, and recognize that for all of us, there's a sense in which we're so visual that when we see something, it has far more, more impact on us than just hearing things. That we're we're a media, in a media world today, and we do visual stuff, so we get that. Visual makes a difference. In this case, he had that vision that was so clear and dramatic of this uh, great blanket, whatever, carpet coming down, four corners with all these animals and birds. I mean, we're talking about something melodramatic here. And he's basically told to go and take one of those or some of those animals and eat them. And in other words, they're, they're not vegetarian. They're basically saying, here's where you get your protein from. But it's from among the non-kosher animals. And he's going, no, I can't, I can't do that. And then God, of course, gives that clear instruction that, hey, what God has made, don't call unclean. This, that, that old day is gone. We're now in a new day. But with that comes the reality that the boundaries of being able to stay strictly within your own neighborhood without any connection with the Gentiles, that's over with. The Gentiles are no longer to be considered unclean. It's interesting, I had a chance to work again in Israel. I've made a number of trips to Israel, and I was considered a goy. What is a goy? A goy is the uh, way in which, yeah, I think it's probably Yiddish, uh, refers to the goyim, that is the nations, the peoples. In other words, that's their way of talking about Gentiles. I was a Gentile among the Jews, and so that distinction was present when I was on the kibbutz. So that can still exist, but no longer did it matter among Christians. It was gone. There's no such thing as a distinction between the goyim and the, the people, the am, the people of Israel. It's over. It's finished. And so with that comes uh, a group of people from Cornelius, and as they uh, came, it, it was a an arrival that came just as the vision that was repeated three times, as, as Greg mentioned last week. God says, sometimes you're a little dull. You need to have the emphasis. That's me. I need to hear things multiple times before it starts to connect. So the third time, and the door knocks. And here come the uh, figures from Cornelius, and they said, we were sent by our boss who is an authoritative figure. He would have been equivalent of probably a, a major, a captain or a major, but he was from the Italian cohort. He's a guy who's from Rome. So a lot of the people who were there to kind of track, uh, keep the Jews under control, they would have had a sprinkling of actual Roman soldiers within that group. Well, here is Cornelius, one of those figures. He is a man who commands respect. And he's now been drawn as a Christ follower, as a God follower, to meet Christ. So he becomes a Christ follower. And with that conversion, 
uh, he then is told, go talk to Simon Peter. So Simon Peter gets the message of those people that have come from, it's a fair trek, it's another probably day and a half's trip uh, from Joppa, which is now Tel Aviv, up to Caesarea. So he comes and they arrive at just the right time. A lot of times we'll find that, th that we will experience these moments of, whoa, is that God at work? That was providential. Two things coming at just the right moment. And that is clearly what Peter recognizes. This is no accident. God was at work in bringing together this new emphatic change for the church. So Peter notes God's providence and that this is something that the Spirit of God was doing. And verse 17, he says, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? If God is doing something, don't get in his way. I'm going to comment for just a moment here. I think a lot of times we have a view of God as a distant figure, uh, a figure who's not particularly involved in our lives. And the shocking reality comes when we realize, no, actually, he is fully engaged with us. He's paying attention. He's more involved. He's got every hair on our head is counted. Go to Matthew 10. There's a startling reality for you. Go to Psalm 139, and you discover that every page of every chapter in our lives is something he knows altogether. He's the one who knits us together in our mother's wombs, which is why we take new life so seriously. This is God's territory. And Peter is getting it. He's, who am I to stand in the way of God? If he's going to give us a new day, it will be a new day. We will shift even after thousands of years of separation between Jews and Gentiles. So, what about the Jerusalem leaders? Uh, we pick that up in verse 18. After they hear these things, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Which is to say, they're going, oh, this is big, uh, this is big news. This is not expected. We did not expect this from God. How did this come about? God, are you sure? I mean, we grew up with, if you've ever seen an old, old movie, Fiddler on the Roof, tradition. And we've got tradition. What are you doing? You're breaking tradition. And so they're silent. They're puzzling over this. But they put together the evidence, and they say, this was God at work. Peter is right. And so the Gentiles also, they discovered, have been granted repentance by God, the repentance that leads to life. This is a gift that God gives now just to the Gentiles as well. That's what Cornelius had. He was called to repent, to change from the ways he had lived as a Roman soldier into the new life that God was supplying, providing for him. And so that's it. We could sit down and be finished now. But, you know, I've got some time to fill here. So we are not done, folks. We've got more to talk about here. Because the issue of change is pretty significant. I'll never forget meeting... Uh, a guy, we'll just call him Jeff, and his wife, we'll call Connie, that's not their names. But I'll never forget Jeff talking about his dear wife, Connie, who I thought was about the loveliest lady. I thought, man, what a gift you have in this lady. And he says, man, she was a pain to live with. I married her, and I realized I had a disaster on my hands. Whoa, she was feisty, she was contentious, she was 
she, I mean, man, I, talk about the pants. I was lucky to ever see them. She, she was in charge. And I, I, nothing I could do would satisfy her. I could see my marriage didn't have much of a future to it. Okay. Now, is that something that can happen? Yeah, the answer is yes. Not everyone lives in a wonderful, caring fashion. But did you hear what I told you a minute ago? I said this was the loveliest couple I'd ever run into. And he's telling me this story about this rascally wife that he had. And I'm going, are you sure that's the, did you get a new wife? What do you know what's going on here? Well, we'll come back to that story. But what we want to talk about is the issue of change. I know that some of us here, I'm going to be careful on my pointing. I don't want you to say, he really did try and point at me. Some of us are rascals who still need to be changed. Recognize that? So that's what we want to talk about now. This is a function of change that's being talked about. A new day, not just in terms of Jews and Gentiles, but a new day for living in a new way towards God and towards each other. To have a marriage that's broken and not working and have that healed and transformed. To have hearts towards others that are just ready to, oh, don't let that person get in my way or they'll be in trouble. And have that changed into a building up devotion to others kind of relationship. Okay, so as we pick that up, let's go to the elements that, that we have here that carry us forward. First of all, the evidence of the Trinity is work. Notice that it was the God who gave the same gift. It's God the Father who's being referred to there. And the same gift that he gives is the Spirit's active presence. So we've got the Father and the Spirit. Then we have the fact that when they come together, we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, both the Jews and the Gentiles. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we're finding is that the communion, the community, the Godhead, the relationality of a Father who lives eternally uh, in a love relationship. We find that in John 17. Father, I pray that they, Jesus is praying to the Father, that they can have uh, access, those who are my people, to be with me, to see the glory that I had with you from before creation. God was existing in communion of love before creation. Call it glory. That they can see the glory that I had with you from before the creation, the glory you gave me because you loved me. And that's what we're invited to have for the rest of eternity. So that's what is being offered here to people who live typically with, well, what's for dinner today? You know, what are we going to do tonight? Very concrete and very narrow and very, very, very modest in our vision. And so part of what we're going to talk about is repentance, which is to say, get your glasses on, your spiritual glasses, the world is far bigger than your immediate concerns and your grumpiness towards your spouse or towards your child or towards your neighbor or whatever you're grumpy about. Recognize that, sorry, you better have a new day, a change, because this is what God is about. He's ready to bring us into eternity. So with that in view, we find that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to build the body of Christ, and that's what he's going to do with both Jews and Gentiles. So as we pick up some of the particulars, I want to take a look at the crucial role of the Spirit's ministry. I, I've been struck with that at how much of a deficit I have in my own view of the Holy Spirit. Because to be honest with you, there's two sides of Christianity. I've mentioned this before. The side that treats him like a battery pack. He's the one who empowers us, and let's leave him alone after that. And then there's the other group that goes, whoa, he's the opioid, the drug of choice. He is the one that gives you a stir and get into the Holy Spirit and forget about everything else in the Scripture. That is to say, he's an exotic feature 
that creates drama. Well, I'm sorry. The Spirit of God brings change. But one thing that's true of the Spirit of God, he doesn't focus on himself. This idea that, well, we had the age of the Father, then the age of the Son, and now the age of the Spirit is nonsense. We go to, to John 15, and, and we find that the Spirit focuses on the Son, and the Son focuses on the Father. There's an otherness within the Godhead, and the Father is delighted with the Son. Psalm 2, he says, here's the question that will come on the day of judgment. Where do you stand with my Son? Do you love him? Are you ready to kiss the anointed one? So Psalm 2, that's Old Testament. But the role of the Spirit is to bring our attention to the Son, not to himself. So let's walk through some of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that we get from the Scriptures. First of all, remember the day of Pentecost. He says, if they've done with the Gentiles what, what God did with us back in chapter 2, we refer to it as chapter 2, in the earlier day, in the prior occasion, when we were waiting in the day of Pentecost and the Spirit of God came and tongues of fire, remember just as the establishment of the tabernacle, there was fire, fiery presence of God, the fiery presence of God in the establishment of the temple. Now there's a fiery presence above the new temple, the believers of Christ, and they are the new place where God dwells on earth. So that's not repeated here among the Gentiles. That's a one-off in all of time in history. But what comes is the Spirit of God comes and breaks the power of the limited Tower of Babel. I have tried to learn languages I'm not good at. But whoa, I would have loved that gift, to be able to be there and to speak so that everyone could understand what I was saying and I could understand what everyone else was saying. That is God saying, I'm going to bring back what I planned on from the beginning communion among all people without hesitation or breach or break. So they get a little dose of that, and with that, they start to celebrate God's presence to everyone around them. And that's exactly what happened among Cornelius and his people. And when Peter's there, they start to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, and it explodes, and they, they you know, the, the Jewish people go, well, okay, that's exactly what we experienced some time ago. And if God is doing that with them, it's the Holy Spirit who gives life, and they have the same life we have. So any ceremonies and traditions go out, go out the door. They're by the by. If this is not something God is demanding, we are not going to demand it either. You don't have to become a Jew to know Jesus. That's the punchline. So as we have that, then we go to Genesis. Where's the Spirit of God in the Bible? The answer is everywhere. Genesis uh, 1. I'm not including these on the screen. Otherwise, you'd be sitting here going, boy, that's verse after verse after verse. So I'll just read them to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the very beginning of the beginning. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's Genesis 1-2. There's the Spirit right at the start. In fact, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers in 200, says, you know, it tells us in Colossians and elsewhere that Jesus is the one who does the creation. Hebrews 1, that he created all that's created. Um, and he says, but it's really with the Spirit that he's doing this work. And so Irenaeus says, so the fa- Father has the Son and the Spirit as his two hands that do the work to accomplish this work of creation and sustaining. Everything it says in Colossians is made by Jesus and for Jesus, and through Jesus, everything holds together. And it's the Spirit who is at work with Jesus. It's the Spirit of Jesus 
There's not a separate. We don't have three gods. We have one God, and the Spirit is the bonding presence between the Father and the Son, active as he is, and he is the one who, with the Son, does that work of creation. So we, uh, we go on to chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, the, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And what we'll find is through the rest of the Bible, the Spirit is viewed as the one who is breathed into, the one who gives life to humans. And so the Spirit was crucial to having life. And Adam and Eve died in the moment that they separated themselves, grieved and quenched the role of the Holy Spirit, their connection with the Spirit in their lives. So they were walking dead from that point on. And that's the problem of sin that then goes through the Old Testament. People who have a form of religion but don't have a relationship with God, and that's what the prophets are always calling them to, is to a relationship with God. And the Spirit will always be the key to that. The people will know God by the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And we find illustrations of that, as in Numbers chapter 11, where Moses is a man who has the Spirit of God working in and through him, and he is tired because they are a bunch of ungodly rascals. I talked about the wife that had gone off the rails, uh, dear Connie. Well, these, uh, this was a whole neighborhood of rascally people who would make Connie look like a sweetheart. Uh, and so they're grumbling because they uh, have been feeding on manna for, you know, water and manna, bread and water. And they come to Moses in chapter 11, Numbers, uh, verses 10 to 25. And uh, they're weeping, crying, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. So you've got God mad. Moses is mad. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why do you not find, why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom and as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to our fathers? Where am I to get meat for all these people? For they weep before me, saying, so they're out in the wilderness, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry this people all alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, then kill me at once. And if I find favor in your sight, uh, kill me so that I may not see my own wretchedness. Is he dealing with depression, possibly? A little anger issue? But he's got a real issue on his hands. He's got probably a couple of million people who are saying, we want a meat meal for a change. This manna is just not cutting it. And so God responds, verse 16, Numbers 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel. They've already broken into tribes, but within that subdivisions. And included that among that are elders of Israel, who you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of the meeting. That's where God would meet with Moses. And let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will bring some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it alone yourself. So Moses went out and told the people the words of God. This is verse 24. And they gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him. He doesn't subdivide the spirit. The spirit is present in him in the same 
presence, the Spirit is not limited to time and space. The Spirit then shares Himself with these other people and uh, these other men. And um, speaking in tongues that both occurs in Acts chapter 2 and then chapter 10, there's this moment that displays God as coming, and whoa, from the inside out, there is transformation, dramatic change. And everyone sees it and goes, whoa, that is amazing. But they don't do it again, but they are there with the Spirit in them providing leadership in the days that follow. So everyone knows that this is a guy in whom is the Spirit. And with that comes both authority and transformation of life. These are key leaders. And so even in the Old Testament, we find that that is crucial. We take a look at the transition from Moses to Joshua, going forward in Numbers to chapter 27, verses 17 and 18. Moses said to the Lord, uh, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, notice the way we were referred to as people who are the spirits. The core of who we are is spiritual. The spirits of all flesh. You're the God who's in charge of everyone. And he refers to that as the spirits of all flesh. Appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. He would have been one of the 70 who would have had the Spirit come upon him, if not even before that. He was a man in whom the Spirit of God was active and transforming him. And then he is then going to be um, uh, the one who then he says, lay your hand on him and designate him as the leader for the next generation. So Joshua then takes over from Moses. But notice the role of the Spirit is the key in that. So if we think the Spirit of God only shows up in the New Testament, I'm sorry, read your Bibles. Uh, he is present in new and old. We find also that the people then don't do so well. They come, come into the land, and they start to worship the gods of the land, and they start to trade and say, well, you know, your lifestyle is a little melodramatic in the way that that forms around your worship. We could maybe borrow some of that because it would be nice and fun, and we like your daughters too. My son would like to marry your daughter. And they start to intermarry, and all kinds of bad things start to happen. And in the end, they start to fall away from God, turn away from God, and they are confronted by the prophets. And one of the prophets that confronts them is Jeremiah. And the people of Israel then are told, you're going to go off to captivity for 70 years. And that is to cleanse you from all the stuff that you've been doing, imitating the ungodly stuff of the culture around you. And it's time for you to be confronted. But then he says in chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, that it's time for a new covenant to be written on their hearts. Notice that we talk about spirit, hearts, the inner part of who we are. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, what we were referring to a minute ago. My covenant that they broke, Mount Sinai, they broke that covenant, though I was their husband. Whoa. So when I use the analogy of marriage, this is no accident. God really takes his relationship with us seriously. What is Jesus looking for? The bride. 
for the rest of eternity. And we're called to be the bride of Christ. This whole marital theme, they have blown it. And so God is speaking through Jeremiah, and he says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After these, those days, declares the Lord, that I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, the outside-in religion stuff isn't working. We're going to have to change to a new day of change from the inside out. And so we go on and find that in Ezekiel, now Jeremiah is in Jerusalem doing these prophecies, and he's there when the whole nation is then taken off to Babylon to captivity. And he says it will last 70 years. So we've got another prophet who is in Babylon, and he's prophesying a few decade, decade or two after that, and he's now talking about the future uh, that is going to be a restoration time. So he's talking, Ezekiel writes in 36, 24 to 28, uh, God speaks. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, Babylon and elsewhere, Syria, and bring you back to your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is probably what Jesus is referring to uh, with Nicodemus, that you, by the water and by... Uh, uh, the, new, the Spirit, the coming of water and the Spirit is going to be the key for transformation. So I will sprinkle clean water on you, and shall, um, you shall be clean from your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a, here we go again, a new heart and a new spirit working from the inside out. I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone. That's what Connie had, and that's why Jeff was ready to divorce her, because he had a heart of stone. Two hearts of stone just are clanking against each other, and nothing is working in that marriage. And in relationships or families or friendships or whatever, where you've got stony hearts, you just start throwing rocks at each other, because that's what a stony heart does. It's a power broker's world. And instead... I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a living heart, a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Notice that? He's the one who's going to do the change, spirit to spirit change. And then you will be able to keep my, my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people. That's marital language. And I shall be your God. See the promise? Who's going to do this? It's this work of the Spirit from within. This is the promise in Ezekiel. So we go on to Joel. This is in chapter 2. We're going to cite this again, even though it was back in chapter 2, after they had this melodramatic moment of the Spirit coming down, flames of fire, speaking in tongues, and the change in the shouting and cheering about who Jesus is. And uh, they summarize this from the book of Joel. Uh, just let me read 2, 12 through 13, and then 28 through 29. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. In other words, when a heart change occurs, outward changes start to come. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. It's really getting a new view of what God is like. 
that changes us. Abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all humanity. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And that's what they see in chapter 2 of Acts. They say, that day has come. It's a new day. But now we find in chapter 10, the day has been extended to the Gentiles, to the Goyim. We get to participate, not by being converted to Judaism, but by having a direct relationship by the Spirit of God in us with God himself through Jesus Christ. So... Let me just comment then on a couple of New Testament gospel mentions of the Spirit just to make the point of how Jesus himself was dependent on the role of the Holy Spirit. Let me go to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to mention 4 and then 8 through 12. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Then going to 4. And he preached saying, after me comes one, this is John speaking, one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. This is John the Baptist, baptizer. And he will baptize you, how? With the Holy Spirit, which is a whole lot more potent than just getting dunked in water. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So he himself goes through water baptism. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like the dove. And this is for the sake of the audience. This wasn't something Jesus needed. He and the Spirit were one with the Father. But now we saw the display of the Spirit coming, saying, this is going to be the one who is going to shape and guide Christ's ministry. And that's what Jesus then passes on to us, his believers, after he departs to go to be with the Father. So the inauguration of Christ's ministry comes with the Spirit upon him. And then the Father speaks. We've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are my beloved, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then the next verse, which a lot of us will never notice until you take a look at it with my kind of, oh my goodness. And the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. Drove Jesus, the Spirit drove We're not talking about a fuzzy power of force, a battery pack. We're talking about a person and a personality who's saying within the Trinity, son, now I am going to one who guides you. Because that's the plan. I'll do with you what I will then do with others who are your children. So I'm going to start right now. You're going to go out and be temp tempted three times. And that's the temptation that occurs right after this verse. Okay? So we start to see that Jesus himself is looking to, relying on, and led by the Spirit in his own life and ministry. We go on to um, another verse. Uh, uh, John chapter 3, where he's talking to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not 
marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit brings change just like the wind shapes a forest. We don't see the wind, but we sure see the trees going back and forth. I'll oftentimes go and look out my morning window as I'm fixing breakfast and see the tree outside my, my, my window just going back and forth. I say, oh, it's a windy day. I don't see the wind, but I see the effects of the wind. That's what the Spirit does with a couple like that rascally Connie and her husband Jeff. She is spiritually dead to God, and all that's birthing out of her is anger and hatred, and I want my space, and I'm in charge here, and quit bugging me, and so on and so forth. And I'll tell you the rest of that story because the Spirit did come in and change things. So anyway, we we go on to uh, Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is talking about his ministry and he cites Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 3. So here's Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Jesus aware, he's in Nazareth and he's presenting himself. This is the place where he grew up. And he's aware of the fact that they're not responding to him. And so he withdrew from there, but many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill. So this is Matthew saying, let me explain what's going on here. And he goes back to Isaiah 42. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, this is quoting Isaiah, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. We've already seen that. The spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God comes upon Jesus, and that's the spirit that he's then given to us, will come upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to the Goyim. We would think, well, to the Jews, right? No, no, beyond that, the plan of God is to reach out to the Gentiles, and the Jews are just a platform for that progression. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name will the Gentiles, the Goyim, rejoice. Wow. So this is the plan of God from eternity past, and we are the ones he's aiming at. We also find out that um, in John John 10, uh, three through four, there's the certainty that anyone, everyone, we can share the gospel and notice that it bounces off of most people. You can just share it as carefully and as thoughtfully as you know how to and say, yeah, well, you know, it's nice that you got your theological religious preoccupations. For me, I'm practical. I've got to get on to my work for the day. And it just bounces off of them. And after a while, you can say, I'm weird and they're ordinary, so I should be more ordinary, so I'm not so weird. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus, as he saves this man who is born blind and gives him life, even though he's thrown out of the community center, the synagogue, by the religious leaders of the day who were still living by tradition, but it was a dead tradition, and Jesus offers life to him. And Jesus then summarizes his ministry in 10, 3 through 4. He says, the sheep hear this shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, where we will actually hear him speaking to us personally. 
and leads them out. When he has brought them all out all his own, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before, for, before him, for his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So here's what we have here is a gospel that if we just share the gospel, some will hear it. Some who will recognize, that's me he's talking to. That's me he's talking about. Others are going, oh, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, barbecue is going to work this afternoon. Because they're not interested in spiritual things or heavenly things. They're interested in tangible here and now stuff. And even if we have the form of religion and we think we're satisfied with the outward aspects of tradition, if we don't hear the voice of the shepherd, we're not there. And that's part of what we're seeing here. The Gentiles, Cornelius was the one who was hearing, as we talked about last week, the call of the shepherd, and he wanted to find out about the shepherd. And the shepherd says, there's no obstacles to your coming to me. I'm the one who is wooing you. I'm the one whose voice you were hearing. Come to me now. And he believed, and he was saved. And so we have this reality of uh, those sheep that hear his voice, and that's the plan of the Gospels, that... uh, Uh, God's plan is to bring people to himself, and he calls them to repent. So what is the final conclusion of the verse that we looked at? When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So what's the key step there? Repentance. But who who is it that gives that as a gift? God gives repentance. It's not an effort that I make. Now I'm going to try and repent. Is that, is that what it took? Let me try again. No, repentance is a gift of saying, oh, my God, I'm the sinner. I never saw it before. I'm the one with the hard heart. I never saw it before. Oh, my God, you're talking to me, and you want me to come to you? Repentance is saying, you're God, I'm not. And my independence has just made a mess of things. Okay, let me tell you about Jeff and Connie. Connie heard Jesus calling, and she met him, and she was born again. She was a religious, but she was not a Christian. She was part of Christian religion, but she didn't know Jesus. And she met Jesus, and he came in, and he took a vacuum cleaner, a scrub brush. He took whatever he did. He changed her. And that's the woman that I met, this changed lady who was about the sweetest, kindest, loveliest person I ever met in my life. The great mom, selfless, devoted, and her husband Jeff says, and that's what brought me to Jesus. When I saw the change in her life, I said, whoa, I want whatever brought about that change because she couldn't, I could not live with her, and then she changed. Oh, my goodness. And that's when he met Jesus. You see, the wind blows, and it makes changes. So what is the difference? Well, let me just read Galatians chapter 5, 17 to 23, and just compare the religion that is formal and outward and external that is fleshly. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So this is five, Galatians 5, 17 to 23. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you, if you actually have the Spirit of God in you, what you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, pornography, you name it, sensuality, 
watching a lot of stuff that is just about sensuality on our media for entertainment. Um, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that. There's a lot of fleshliness in any given church. And you know what? The people in Camus are waiting to see what comes next. Now, I warn you that you warned you before that those who do such things, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. They can claim to be Christians all they want, but there's nothing different about them. They're just plain old ordinary fleshly living in this life for this life people. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there's no law. There's nothing that will ever say, stop doing that. We'll go, whoa, I want to be around you. That was Connie when she was changed. And that's when we're changed like that. Everyone in Camas, Prune Hill, Clark County, Portland, and beyond will start to say, what has gone on in that group of people? I want to be part of that. Because we all long to have that inward cleaning, that changed heart, that transformation. And repentance is saying, Lord Jesus, I can't do that on my own. Could you please do that work in me? So that's the punchline of what we want to say today, that we're invited to respond, to hear the voice. And he's good at that. He's saying, oh, you know, that's you I'm talking to. You know, Ron is up there babbling away, but I'm here to talk to you. And if, if he's doing that, and if you've got more of the fruit of the flesh than the fruit of the Spirit in your life, here's what I'd suggest you do. After we're, while we're doing communion, while we're after this afternoon, this, after, this week, go out and find a place where you go out and say, um, Lord, I would like to have you come in and take over. I'd like you to come in with your heart change thing. And I can't change my own heart. I've tried to clean up my act a few times, and that lasts for about an hour and a half. Could you please do that work in me and fill me with your spirit? Take over my life. Become a bride-bridegroom relationship with me. Even us guys have to bow down and say, yeah, okay, submit to the one who is greater than us with joy and discover that we will never be what we were made to be until we give our heart away. And that's the joy of what we're talking about here in the book of Acts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit.